Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 105th episode of the podcast, and... I've said it before, and I will say it again. I appreciate you carving out a few minutes of your day to tap or click on the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast and listening to a few things I have to say, and hopefully it gets you heading somewhere else to do something else, whether it be read another article, pick up a book, pick up a magazine, go to fly shop, or get out on the water. That is truly what I hope you do with these 20 to 25 minutes. And if you have the time and you think I deserve it, head over to iTunes and leave a review and a rating. That would be fantastic. And as I've said before, don't hesitate to share this podcast with someone that you know, somebody that uh, you think might be interested in the podcast, somebody who's getting into fly fishing, somebody who's been fly fishing for a long time, who's just getting into podcasts. Uh, I'm planning on doing some more entry-level content here in the near future, as well as mixing in a few more stories. Today I'm talking about animals. I always talk about animals in the podcast, talk about fish pretty much every time. But uh, today I'm going to talk about a few different animals that uh, we encounter while we are fly fishing. And the first is one that a lot of people are not a fan of, and that is snakes. And what do snakes have to do with fly fishing? Just wait. Bear with me. You will find out. But I want to start off by saying that I'm not afraid of snakes. What I'm not a fan of is their snakiness. Herpetologically speaking, Herpetologically, look that one up. Herpetologically speaking, this is the trait that snakes possess that allows them to surprise you. Rarely does one see a snake coming from a long distance off, as you would a bison or a truck full of rural folk. The aforementioned disturbances announce their presence and often their intentions with snorting and general carrying on. Snakes might rattle, and that's only some of them. And if you fish, you've encountered a snake. Swimming through the water laying across the trail, dangling from a tree, curled up in the toe of your wading boots. Such are the joys and perils of being outside. 
In every one of those circumstances, the snake catches you off guard. What a wonderful day. This is a pleasant path. I love nature. Look at that. A length of hose all the way out. Oh, Jesus, a snake. Then your heart is in your throat. And if you're over 65 or have a condition, you probably need to sit down at this point. How fun is that? Now, I've had some memorable snake experiences. And here's a trigger warning. There are snakes in the snake stories I'm about to tell about snakes. The first one was early springtime. I was fishing a very slow stretch of a catch-and-release fly-fishing-only freestone stream. Trout were sipping midges, and I was having as much fun as one could have pretending that the fish were going to take my sad imitation of the hundreds of real bugs on the water. A few fish were caught, and the promise of a great day swung through my mind like my dragging fly. Then I saw it, a great trout, gulping midges and moving upstream. It was the gluttonous behavior I've seen in large fish. It's essentially the whale, baleen, plankton, or college student pizza feeding strategy. Furthermore, it was heading towards me. A downstream cast with a tiny dry isn't ideal, but at the rate the trophy was feeding, I assumed the fly would be halfway digested before I set the hook. But it was getting awfully close. Yeah, it was a snake. Basically, it was acting like the Loch Ness Monster. This thing was undulating right under the surface. Its snaky maw was agape, and it was gorging itself on little gnats. It was terrifying to behold. What's more, it saw me at about an arm's length. My arm, not the snake's, obviously. And it dove underwater, near my submerged waist. I don't think my Sims lightweight breathable waders were snake-proof, nor was my waiting belt tight enough to keep it from springing up from behind me and slithering who knows where. I thrashed around the water with my wispy three-weight. I slipped and regained my balance, and ironically enough, the contortions employed to remain upright strained and sprained things much more severely than a quick fall might have. But I'm sure I taught that snake a real lesson because I didn't see it again. Second story. Summertime on a spring creek. High streamside grasses provided great cover to sneak up and flip a chunky streamer. Once in the water, I could jig it around to probe the deep undercut banks, and even with relatively large flies, this whole process can require a lot of finesse. Slow approaches, natural presentations, and no shadows or silhouettes are virtually necessary. Jumping and shrieking aren't part of that equation, usually. The reaction was largely due to a very distinct rattling noise within close proximity to my face. Now, composure restored, which of course is mainly comprised of making sure no one saw me act like an idiot, I girded my loins to confront the serpent. In all seriousness, although I don't like being surprised by snakes, I really don't bear any animosity towards them. I know that the streams and woods are more theirs than mine, and that they are important parts of the ecosystem they live in. That being said, the following continuation of the story is kind of bittersweet. It lunged. I'm serious. The snake lunged. I reacted with my weapon of choice. My three-weight. The tape measure on the snake may have only read about 16 inches, but it was a really mean 16 inches. As a result of my parry, it was flung into the stream. I'm pretty sure that once it got its legs underneath it, it started back towards me. I can't be sure, but it seemed like the kind of snake that would do such a thing. Then it happened. Out from underneath a telephone pole that had been lodged in the stream bank to shore up the riparian area and provide cover, a large object emerged. The brown trout was 26 inches easy. The fish's mouth opened slowly and clamped down on the midsection of the snake. Then it slurped it in, head and tail, inhaled, parallel to one another. It was the circle of life. 
And after I kind of composed myself again, I realized I didn't have any snake flies in my box. Well, again, I'm generally fine with snakes. Many other animals have caused anxiety while I've been fly fishing. Muskrats, beavers, red-winged blackbirds, bears, deers, snapping turtles, house cats, stray dogs, other anglers. Snakes probably end up pretty low on that list. It's how they surprise me that gets me all frazzled. And what happens after you've had a snake encounter? You assume there's going to be another one. Any second. Deer. Deer don't connive like that. I've seen all of the Field and Stream articles about being careful. I paused to look at the snake bite proof armor sold at Cabela's, and I know that statistically I'm more likely to die in a train accident. And I don't even ride in trains, but that split second moment of snake doesn't adequately allow one to recite red to black friend of Jack in their heads before they do something silly. In conclusion, I'd like to propose a truce. I want to fish, you snakes, you want to do your thing, sunning yourself, coiling menacingly, etc. I'm pretty sure we can both do these things harmoniously. I'll not write any more species defaming articles if all snakes agree to wear rattles that light up and sound less snaky. Maybe play Maneater by Hollow Notes. It's just a thought. But it's not just snakes. There's other stuff out there too that you run across even in relatively settled and tamed environments. And they can cause some fly fishing angst as well. You know, you've noticed that there's other animals out there. And sometimes they vie for your attention, kind of like the snakes do. And surprisingly, it's not just majestic eagles soaring overhead or regal-looking bucks silhouetted against azure skies. Nor is it always bears or wolves or alligators looking to take advantage of a distracted angler. Every once in a while, or more often if you're like me, you'll have seemingly benign wildlife encounters that impact your fishing. So what I decided to do for today is compile a list of some of the more obnoxious varmints that haunt the same spaces as the fish that we pursue. Now, this is not a call for their eradication or even their vilification. It's more of a public service announcement from me to you that there are wild and domesticated animals that might make your day on the water a little bit more challenging than you'd like. Perhaps you're a real fan of one of these critters, and that's okay. Everyone has a little dysfunction in their head. But for the rest of you, take heed. So, let's start with the first. And this actually popped up on Casting Across earlier this week, which I'll talk about at the end of the podcast. Spiders. I don't think I need to explain this one. You're the first one on the creek, which means that you're the first one who gets to amass miles of spiderweb on your face and hair as you make your way to the water. Let's get real. There's no way that when this happens that there isn't a spider crawling around somewhere on you after that happens. Secondly, cattle. Particularly in and around spring creeks, there are cows. Now, all the environmental issues aside, large bovines can go from pastorally picturesque to perturbing at the drop of a pie. And I've never heard anyone complain about a herd of cattle grazing up on a hill. I've personally complained about being nudged by an overzealous juvenile cow while I'm trying to tie in a new fly. Plus, their poo is enormous. Third, red-winged blackbirds. What is that delightfully shrill noise I hear? What is that angry dark flash that keeps flitting about my head? A. It's not an oriole. B. It is just being protective of its nest. C. It's still as obnoxious as any feathered creature that has ever been hatched. The red-winged blackbird ought to be the mascot of a professional sports team. The logo should be of the type where a bird is given snarling teeth. It would be very appropriate for red-winged blackbirds. 
Bats. Mass emergences of flies are the things of fly fishers' dreams. If you've ever experienced such a thing at twilight, it can be a memorable session of angling. It can also be moderately terrifying if you're at all squeamish about bats, because you're going to be a beacon for bugs, especially if you have a headlamp on. And every bat on the creek is going to use you as an insect maypole. Oh, and if you hook one by accident, just remember that the fly that you have on the end of your line is not worth a series of rabies stomach shots. Beavers and muskrats. These furry little rapscallions account for three of the fly fisher's streamside woes, fright, injury, and spooking fish. Beavers. Beavers can be the size of small black bears. Surprise one, and the resulting splashes will stop your heart. Muskrats will dig and dig and dig for no other reason than to trip you and twist your ankle. Lastly, as either of these pecivorous rodents swim away from you, they'll put down every fish in that section of stream. If you ever think you need a new winter hat, remember, beavers and muskrats. Beavers and muskrats. Waterfowl. Ah. Small stream angling is all about stealth, position, and presentation. The exact point at which you need to position yourself for such an approach has precisely the same requirements as a goose's nest. And geese are angry buggers. Speaking of stealth, ducks have a keen sense of taking off as loudly as possible from the hole you are about to fish, just careen down to the hole that you'd fish after that. If you are in the market for a new down vest, remember that waterfowl are problematic for the angler. So, don't get me wrong. I'm an animal lover. It's been said before. I think they're delicious. But seriously, though, the animus expressed in all this is mostly hyperbole. And I've made my feeling known about these animals time and time again. But uh, usually coming across things like this in the woods is a pleasant surprise. Especially when they're at a distance. And they don't bother me while I'm fishing. And if they're larger than a dog, I don't step in their poop with my wedding boots. Now, everything I just described is limited to the stream. If we were talking about camping, if we were talking about hiking, we could have an entire other podcast episode about all of the things that you encounter. And my goodness, if the noises made by everything from small mice and chipmunks to potentially even something bigger like a possum or a raccoon that first night you're camping don't really just unsettle you, then you spend entirely too much time in the woods. Um, I think I've told this story before, but it's worth bearing with me simply for the sheer horror movie nature of it. But a buddy and I were camping on the side of a stream, and we could probably hear the highway. We were so close to civilization. And late at night, one of us turned on a flashlight to find more firewood, and when we shined the light up the hillside, we saw eyes. That's, you know, it is what it is. They're eyes, right? There's tons of animals in the woods. That's why we go in the woods. Everything I've been talking about, of course, you're happy to have animals there, even if they're inconvenient, because usually animals are indicative of a healthy ecosystem, and that's where you're going to find fish, right? Right? Okay, good. So we say, okay, what's that? And I think we're teenagers at the time. If not, we're in college, and so we're still a little bit skittish about stuff. And then all of a sudden, we hear a noise up on the hillside, and flashlights go back up, and the thing's closer, and it freezes which makes it worse. I guess I wouldn't want it bounding towards me, but the fact that it knows what we're doing, that it's like cognizant of what's happening, somehow makes it a little bit terrifying. This happens two more times until it's just out of like the, the beam of the light. All we can see is eyes, and they, they're as big as, as cue balls at this point. 
We never figured out what it was. I'm sure it's probably a house cat, but at the same time, you know, it could have been a jaguar. It could have been a chupacabra, for goodness sake. But anyway, these kind of experiences, they're a lot of fun to look back on, but they have those moments, especially when you're by yourself or it's nighttime or you're in a new place or you can't identify the sound or the prints or anything like that, where it really uh, can throw you off. And then, of course, it does bother the fishing every once in a while. Any interesting animal stories from your fly fishing experiences? Let me know. Send me an email, Matthew at castingacross.com. I'd be happy to interact with that on my next uh, reader interaction podcast. So first article this week on casting across is called The Best Time to Book Your Fishing Trip. The Best Time to Book Your Fishing Trip. Now this is a somewhat timely article, but at the same time it can be applied, I would say, kind of anytime, anywhere. And the reason is that now is a great time to book your fishing trip, A, because you're about five months away from the season really beginning in earnest in a lot of places, and now's the time for you to take advantage of those prime spots. They are going to start filling up, irrespective of what's happening with COVID, with the economy, with politics. People who want to fish are going to fish, and they're going to book lodges and guides for those best spring spots soon, so make it happen. Secondly, and this is not to take advantage of anybody. It's not. It is simply um, doing what you can do to get on the water if you want to get on the water, and that is take advantage of the fact that a lot of lodges and potentially even guides and certainly um, different aspects and facets of the travel agency, whether it be um, flights or rental cars or hotels, you're going to get deals now. While COVID is still in swing and people are a little bit hesitant to travel, you can book now even farther out if you're able to and probably get a pretty good deal. You always get a good deal when you book far ahead. You can do it now and, you know, fingers crossed, Lord willing, things get better in the springtime, you now have a great weekend set somewhere that you got at maybe 10 or 20% less than you would have. So there's a couple other tidbits of uh, information that I put in the best time to book your fishing trip. There is a picture of a drift boat on a beautiful summer day at the head of that article. So hopefully that'll give you a little bit of incentive to think about where you want to go. Oh, the the last one, I just just had to throw this one in there because now might be the time when people are asking you what you want for Christmas. Uh, Just say a fly fishing trip. Give them four or five destinations. Give them four or five lodges. Give them four or five guides and let them do the, the work and let them surprise you. Uh, That would be a wonderful thing to open up on Christmas morning is a simple card saying you're going here, pick the dates, or these are the dates that uh, we've we've committed to let you go on this trip, or maybe we're even going together. Um, That would be a fantastic gift, so consider that. Um, You know, give a little bit of information, but let them do the the gifting and some of the, the footwork for you to make that happen. Wednesday's article is called Reddington Zero, A Little Goes a Long Way. A Little Goes a Long Way. I've talked about the Reddington Zero before, and I have been uh, just really impressed with this tiny, inexpensive, ultralight reel. It is durable. It's a clicker-style reel, so there's not a whole lot involved, but the clicker has been very, very durable. It has withstood a lot of gunk and mud and nastiness, and it has 
continuing to work fine even just after a little rinse or even just a little bit of time of it drying out. Um, it has not gotten beat up. Um, I have fallen down, I have dropped it, and it still looks fine. It's a durable reel, but the best thing about it is that it hardly weighs anything. Now, why do you want a reel that hardly weighs anything? You can say, you know, I've been to the fly shop. I've picked up some of these awesome $400, $500 trout reels, and they've got a little bit of heft to them. And you know what? More power to you. If you're fishing a, a nine-foot four weight that uh, has a, a, a more uh, rigid flex profile and uh, more progressive to fast action, then that may very well be the perfect reel for that rod, especially if you're fishing like a streamer rod, like a six weight or a seven, seven weight, you're going to not only want that reel to balance that rod out, but you're going to want the disc drag that's inevitably inside for the fish fighting power. But if you are fishing lightweight rods, the zeros, ones, twos, threes, and fours, and even lightweight five weights, have you ever noticed that you pick up some of these rods and they feel like they do not weigh anything? Now, that might not be your bag. That might not be your style of fishing. But for delicate dry fly presentations or for small mountain streams or for fishing some finesse um, angling situations on spring creeks, there are rods that I fish that are incredibly lightweight. They do some great jobs for um, tippet protection. They lay down uh, all sorts of dry flies and, and even some uh, heavier uh, underwater patterns very, very effortlessly and they feel like they are nothing in your hand and they feel beautiful and they almost feel like they've been designed to simply be held in your hand and to have a, a line uh, run through the guides and have the rest of the line puddled up on, on the floor at your feet. Now, obviously that's not reasonable and that is not how anyone should or does fish. So what do you do? You can't put those big five, six ounce that sounds even silly to say it, big six ounce. But when you throw a six ounce reel, even if it's a beautiful reel, even if it comes from the most reputable manufacturers out there, even if it has a rock solid drag and it's pretty and all those things, it's going to make that, you know, less than three ounce rod feel pretty off balance. Now, why does this matter? Well, having an off balance rod can really impact your casting. Um, it is going to move the fulcrum point really, really low. And all of that to say is that you're going to get really wristy really quick. Uh, it could potentially even tire you out. I've noticed that I get more tired in, especially my wrist, but in, even in my hand muscles and down into my elbow, if I am fishing an unbalanced rod, uh, eight, nine weights, or four and five weights, whereas if I have a reel that balances with that rod well, my casting and also any sort of uh, fatigue is going to go away. Same rod, uh, just a different reel. Maybe a little heavier, maybe a little lighter. But uh, the Zero pairs beautifully with the 2 and 3 weights and the 4 and 5 weights. They come in those two sizes, uh, 2, 3, 4, 5. But it's also light enough that I put it on 0 and 1 weights, and it performs beautifully. So if you have a, a rod, especially uh, glass or, or uh, graphite, that is incredibly light in hand, and you want to kind of get its, its feel as well as its casting action closer to the experience of just the time you pick that fly right up in the fly shop and uh, wiggle it around, which I know that's not fishing, but there's something to be said for some of these really, really ultralight rods where that feel is kind of what you're going for. You throw a zero on there and it's going to be a, a great match, I, I guarantee it. And for less than 100 bucks, I mean, you honestly cannot beat it. So check out the article. I talk a little more particular about the Reddington Zero and why you should add it to your lightweight fly rods.
This week's recommendation on the podcast is actually a totally different reel from Reddington. So I like Reddington reels. I I think that the the um, the zero and the behemoth are two of the best reels that you can get for the money, and they perform under all sorts of circumstances that you know they they fit into. But there's another reel that I think you ought to consider, especially if you don't like the idea of a die cast reel, which the zero and and the behemoth for that matter, those are die cast reels, and I don't have time to to go into all the particulars of that. But if you want a machined aluminum reel that performs a lot like the zero does but actually has a higher quality drag system and a higher quality build because it is machined aluminum then the rise is a fantastic option so one of the reasons i, I love reddington products and in uh you know rods reels and even uh, their waiting boots and some of their accessories is just because of the value that you get some of the designs are out of the box and some of the branding is is really contemporary but that doesn't bother me any in fact i really really appreciate it but the rise reel is a little bit heavier than the zero because it is made out of aluminum but the three four reel weighs in right at four ounces it's a very light reel but it has a really good uh, arbor that can uh, retrieve line in a very very uniform manner very quick change spool system ergonomic handle um, but it, it's very light and it will balance well with those rods so Totally understand if you have an $800, $900 rod that you want to pair with an ultralight reel, um, you might want to go for the Rise. It only costs $199 for the 3.4, and it comes in a handful of colors. But it's a really, really good reel, and it's it's relatively new. It's actually new for this year. The Zero's been out for a few years, but it's definitely worth checking out um, along with Reddington's other products. So I'll put a link to the Rise on the bottom of the show notes for this episode's page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.